Hey, it's in a book. It's a new podcast with the focus, drumroll please, on books. I'm your host, Lawrence Rouse. I'm arriving at your audio delivery device of choice, all the way from our studio here in the capital city of Raleigh, North Carolina. Now, you're listening to our inaugural episode, so before we get right into the heart of the matter, I'd like to talk a little about our format. Of course, the point of the podcast is books, to read them. And that's exactly what we'll do for about 45 minutes each episode. Some of our favorites. Novels, short stories, poems, books. Each show, though, before we begin our reading segment, we'll tackle current events and an interview. Now, since you can't see the scare quotes I just mined, let's have a word about the word current. One of the most beautiful aspects of great literature, as far as I'm concerned, is that it completely gives lie to the idea of current. A writer hard at work on her MacBook Pro is, in essence, not so far removed from Hemingway on his Royal, or Trollope with his quill pen. Her digital copy is ready to spring, complete from her last keystroke, into the pantheon of great literature that is both now and forever, as long as its antecedents exist, yesterday, today, and a predetermined future waiting only to be decoded. Whoa, is it getting warmer here or is it just me? So, current, as we will practice it, refers to that act of decoding. Simply put, our current events are all about what our host, and 90% of the time that will be me, is reading on a personal basis at the recording of any given show. Additionally, we may occasionally drop a dime on any monumental occurrences or anniversaries in the world of literature. Now, our interview. No truly credible endeavor with books as its subject can overlook the reader. With that in mind, each show will feature a short question and answer session with the reader of note from here in the city of Oaks. Finally then, we'll arrive at the meat and potatoes, the books, the stories, and occasionally the poems we'll explore as proof of our central assertion. Every show will devote 45 minutes to a short story, a novel excerpt, a collection of poems that, in the humble opinion of our production staff, go to illustrate. Whatever you're seeking, wherever you want to go, whenever you have a question, the object the destination, the answer, it's in a book. So now, our first show. What do you think when I say Invisible Man? Ellison or Wells? <laughs> or Rowling? Despite that in the public space, the sci-fi psychological and magical aspects of invisibility have been far more often approached, examined, and explored than the self and social identification angle that Ralph Ellison fleshed out in his 1952 debut novel. I personally always think Ellison when I hear the word invisible. In fact, over the years I've come to consider the word sort of a proper name for the otherwise nameless hero of Ellison's disturbing social metaphor. Now, I'm ashamed to say that I didn't read Invisible Man for the first time until somewhere around 2002. I was a mostly fully grown man by then, living in the South, and one of the things that startled me about the book 
was how similar to the trajectory of my own experiences was Invisibles. That's a story for another time. Uh, suffice to say, the book, in addition to being an incredible feat for an American author, one that helped shape a little what our novels can be, left quite an impression with me. It's an impression that's remained with me and, and one that's evolved through multiple readings of, uh, of the book. In this, our first episode, we'll share one more reading of the opening of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, probably not my last, together. So, is the our first session of current this events is, is about the end of an era. Before we discuss it, though, I need to take a minute to bemoan the sad state of my reading this year. I managed to read about 60 books last year, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 short of my stated goal of 100. This year, however, is starting really horribly. I finished just one book in January, and so far in February, I've only finished one more. That one book, however, just happens to be the final volume of a 14-book tale I picked up sometime after turning 18 over 20 years ago. Now, anyone familiar with those books probably has a similar tale of woe to my own with regard to the incredible journey that reading and now finally finishing Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series has been. I'm not even going to go too far down that path. Suffice to say, when my wife picked up the final book, A Memory of Light, for me, from Barnes & Noble, the minute it went on sale, I had mixed feelings about ever picking it up to read. In college, two volumes of the books were published before I left school in 1994. Each time, I picked the book up from a comic book store, found Dyson's Edge, on the ground floor of the Electric Company Ball on Hillsborough Street, and I skipped the rest of my classes that day and the next to finish the book. This time, a memory of light sat on a stool in my house for weeks. I just couldn't bring myself to finally bring to a close the whole wonderful, terrible chapter of my life that waiting for the books and becoming completely immersed in the world within them, only to have it end so quickly and be followed sometimes by years of waiting for the next book has entailed. Until about a week ago. One morning last week, I found myself with some arguably free time and my fear that the ending might be revealed to me by a friend or the internet or some other spoiler finally got to me. By noon, I was 400 pages into the book. By bedtime for most people that night, I was over 700 pages in. The action was as non-stop, as dizzyingly complicated as impossible to resist as ever. At 2 a.m. the next morning, I finished the last page. It was finally over. Thanks, Robert Jordan. Thanks, Brandon Sanderson. The wheel weaves as the wheel wills. So, 
here we are at our very first interview. And I am happy and proud to say that the initial Raleigh reader we will profile is none other than the love of my life and voracious reader, Kristen Holmes Rouse. Now, Kristen runs our home and keeps our lives on track through all the twists and turns of my day job. Despite the incredible busyness that such entails, she's never more than a few days from starting a new book. So I'm switching on her microphone and welcoming her into the booth. Welcome to the studio. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, you ready? Yep. All right. Let's get started. Um, so we came up with this list of questions. It's uh, it's pretty standard. Hopefully we will ask every Raleigh reader that we uh, profile these questions. And uh, I've already introduced Kristen to the questions a little bit, so I guess that's a bit of cheating. But uh, the first question is this. It's a busy world these days. How do you find the time to read? Well, that's a really good question because I'm a stay-at-home mom, so it isn't easy to find time to read. But I do most of my reading in the morning, right when my son and I get up and I get my coffee and get his breath. Hmm? Keep going. I was just saying our son's name, Holden. Oh, Holden. <laughs> get his breakfast and we sit down on the couch for a while and he usually lets me read for about an hour or so before we start our day. And then sometimes we have some downtime between one and three where I make him rest and I'll read then and then sometimes I read at night. So I'm lucky that I have a real patient kid. So. Right. Yeah. Cool. He is patient. He is. Cool little guy. So uh, how do you decide what to read? Well, most of the time it's just word of mouth from friends and family of books that they've heard about. Um I do sometimes check out the People Magazine book list, and they've never left me disappointed. Um, and also Oprah's Book Club. Really? Yes. <laughs> Don't shun me for that. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, um, yeah. So. All right. So. Oh, wait. And our own bookshelves. Right. Right. Yeah. We often buy books based on the cover even though you don't judge a book by its cover we do totally so at any given time we have several books that neither one of us have read so i can just stand before the shelf and take a pick right right cool cool so talk a little bit and we just did a bit there uh, i guess talking revealing our our book cover secrets but talk a little bit about uh books as objects uh how many do you have do you prefer paper digital take as much time to answer that as you like Well, I was an English major, and even in college, and even before that, I loved books, so I've always collected books, and like you, if I read a book and love it, I have to own it, and I just love the way books look look around the house. You know, we stack them in places, we have several bookshelves, at times we've even categorized them based on color, based on genre, Mm -hmm. so I, I just... I think they're beautiful things. Right. right. So, paper or digital? Oh, paper or digital. Yeah. And how many do you have? I guess I guess that's kind of a cheat. I know exactly how many you have. Too many to count. How many books do I have? Yeah. We have hundreds. Right. Yeah. I prefer paper, uh, just because there's nothing like holding a book. And like I said, I like to own a book if I, if I love it. And now that we have a kid, I want him to be able to read books that we've read and with the digital books, I just don't know if 20 years from now, Holden will be able to get a copy of a digital book that we've bought. But one cool thing about the Nook is when you travel, 
the the Barnes and Noble the Barnes and Noble Nook reader that we have. Shout out to Barnes and Noble. Right, I right. guess not, you're not giving endorsing it over okay. any other digital reader, I guess. But um, but when you're travel, you know, books can be he- really heavy in your carry-on bag, and I do like lying in bed reading a Nook because it can be really hard to read a big hardback laying on your side in bed. Right. right. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. So. What's your favorite book of all time and why? Okay, well, we've talked about this some. I don't really have a favorite book of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have favorite books, you know, from throughout my life. Like a favorite book in high school was Catcher in the Rye, mm-hmm. which Lawrence has never read. Never read it. One day. Um, you know, I would say about every year I have a favorite book that stands out to me from that year. Um, and I think I told you I have a problem remembering books I I remember the impression they gave me and the gist of what they were about but a year later I can't recall the complete story of a book Um, I just remember the impression they made on me so that may be part of why I don't really have a favorite book of all time I can understand that I I think I do have one but I, I do have one book that I can read over and over and it's Back Roads by Tawny O'Dell. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. I read that. So it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, last question. What are you reading right now? I'm reading From the Mouth of the River of Bees. Uh-huh. Yeah. By yeah. Kiz Johnson, who's right. a friend of a friend. Right. And Lawrence got you. to meet her at the Quail Ridge bookstore. And um, it's a book of short stories, which I don't usually read, but so far I really like it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kidge Johnson is uh, a good friend of a good friend of ours, William Badger, uh, who's in, in London, well, Oxford, England right now. And uh, he sent me the Quill Ridge books to, uh, to hear her read the book, and it was really a great reading. And, uh, and so I bought a copy for Christine. I guess probably here in a few days, uh, she'll be moving on to something else. So um, I guess uh, that that about wraps it up. I'd like to thank you for doing the interview, and I'm sure any listeners out there, you know, at some future point, once they can listen to this, uh, thank you as well. So um, you are the first of hopefully many, many Raleigh readers who will share with us their love of books. And uh, so I'll see you you around. Yeah, I'll see you in a few minutes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, babe. Bye. Bye. Good night. Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison Prologue I am an invisible man. No... I am not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bodiless heads you sometimes see in circus sideshows, It is as though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, 
themselves or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. Nor is my invisibility exactly a matter of a biochemical accident to my epidermis. That invisibility to which I refer occurs because of a peculiar disposition of the eyes of those with whom I come in contact. A matter of the construction of their inner eyes, those eyes with which they look through their physical eyes upon reality. I am not complaining, nor am I protesting either. It is sometimes advantageous to be unseen, although it is most often rather wearing on the nerves. Then, too, you're constantly being bumped against by those of poor vision. Or again, you often doubt if you really exist. You wonder whether you aren't simply a phantom in other people's minds, say, a figure in a nightmare which the sleeper tries with all his strength to destroy. It's when you feel like this that, out of resentment, you begin to bump people back. And let me confess, you feel that way most of the time. You ache with the need to convince yourself that you do exist in the real world, that you're a part of all the sound and anguish, and you strike out with your fists. You curse, and you swear to make them recognize you. And alas, it's seldom successful. One night, I accidentally bumped into a man, and perhaps because of the near darkness, he saw me and called me an insulting name. I sprang at him, seized his coat lapels, and demanded that he apologize. He was a tall, blonde man, and as my face came close to his, he looked insolently out of his blue eyes and cursed me, his breath hot in my face as he struggled. I pulled his chin down sharp upon the crown of my head, butting him as I had seen the West Indians do, and I felt his flesh tear and the blood gush out, and I yelled, Apologize! Apologize! But he continued to curse and struggle, and I butted him again and again until he went down heavily on his knees, profusely bleeding. I kicked him repeatedly, in a frenzy because he still uttered insults, though his lips were frothy with blood. Oh yes, I kicked him, and in my outrage, I got out my knife and prepared to slit his throat, right there beneath the lamplight in the deserted street, holding him by the collar with one hand and opening the knife with my teeth. When it occurred to me that the man had not seen me, actually that he, as far as he knew, was in the midst of a walking nightmare. And I stopped the blade, slicing the air as I pushed him away letting him fall back to the street. I stared at him hard as the lights of a car stabbed through the darkness. He lay there, moaning on the asphalt, a man almost killed by a phantom. It unnerved me. I was both disgusted and ashamed. I was like a drunken man myself, wavering about on weakened legs. Then I was amused. Something in this man's thick head had sprung out and beaten him within an inch of his life. I began to laugh at this crazy discovery, 
Would he have awakened at the point of death? Would death himself have freed him for wakeful living? But I didn't linger. I ran away into the dark, laughing so hard I feared I might rupture myself. The next day I saw his picture in the daily news, beneath a caption stating that he had been mugged. Poor fool. Poor blind fool, I thought, with sincere compassion. Mugged by an invisible man. Most of the time, although I do not choose, as I once did, to deny the violence of my days by ignoring it, I am not so overtly violent. I remember that I am invisible, and walk softly so as not to awake the sleeping ones. Sometimes it is best not to awaken them. There are few things in the world as dangerous as sleepwalkers. I learned in time, though, that it is possible to carry on a fight against them without their realizing it. For instance, I have been carrying on a fight with manipulated light and power for some time now. I use their service and pay them nothing at all, and they don't know it. Oh, they suspect that power is being drained off, but they don't know where. All they know is that according to the master meter back there in their power station, a hell of a lot of free current is disappearing somewhere into the jungle of Harlem. The joke, of course, is that I don't live in Harlem, but in a border area. Several years ago, before I discovered the advantage of being invisible, I went through the routine process of buying service and paying their outrageous rates. But no more. I gave up all that, along with my apartment and my old way of life. That way, based on the fallacious assumption that I, like other men, was visible. Now, aware of my invisibility, I live rent-free in a building rented strictly to whites, in a section of the basement that was shut off and forgotten during the 19th century, which I discovered when I was trying to escape in the night from Roz, the destroyer. But that's getting too far ahead of the story. Almost to the end, although the end is in the beginning and lies far ahead. The point now is that I found a home, or a hole in the ground, as you will. Now, don't jump to the conclusion that because I call my home a hole, it is damp and cold like a grave. There are cold holes and warm holes. Mine is a warm hole. And remember, a bear retires to his hole for the winter and lives until spring. Then he comes strolling out like the Easter chick, breaking from its shell. I say all this to assure you that it is incorrect to assume that, because I am invisible and live in a hole, I am dead. I am neither dead nor in a state of suspended animation. Call me Jack the Bear, for I am in a state of hibernation. My hole is warm and full of light. Yes, full of light. I doubt if there is a brighter spot in all New York than this hole of mine, and I do not exclude Broadway or the Empire State Building on a photographer's dream night. But that is taking advantage of you. Those two spots are among the darkest of our whole civilization. Pardon me, our whole culture. 
an important distinction I've heard. Which might sound like a hoax or a contradiction, but that, by contradiction I mean, is how the world moves. Not like an arrow, but a boomerang. Beware of those who speak of the spiral of history. They are preparing the boomerang. Keep a still helmet handy. I know. I have been boomeranged across my head so much that I now can see the darkness of lightness. And I love light. Perhaps you'll think it strange that an invisible man should need light, desire light, love light. But maybe it is exactly because I am invisible. Light confirms my reality, gives birth to my form. A beautiful girl once told me of a recurring nightmare in which she lay in the center of a large, dark room and felt her face expand until it filled the whole room, becoming a formless mass while her eyes ran in bilious jelly up the chimney. And so it is with me. Without light, I am not only invisible, but formless as well. And to be unaware of one's form is to live a death. I myself, after existing some twenty years, did not become alive until I discovered my invisibility. That is why I fight my battle with monopolated light and power. The deeper reason, I mean. It allows me to fill my vital aliveness. I also fight them for taking so much of my money before I learn to protect myself. In my hole in the basement, there are exactly 1,369 lights. I've wired the entire ceiling, every inch of it, and not with fluorescent bulbs, but with the older, more expensive to operate kind, the filament type. An act of sabotage, you know. I've already begun to wire the wall. A junk man I know, a man of vision has supplied me with wire and sockets. Nothing, storm or flood, must get in the way of our need for light, and ever more and brighter light. The truth is the light, and light is the truth. When I finish all four walls, then I'll start on the floor. Just how that will go, I don't know. Yet, when you've lived invisible as long as I have, you develop a certain ingenuity. I'll solve the problem. And maybe I'll invent a gadget to place my coffee pot on the fire while I lie in bed. I even invent a gadget to warm my bed, like the fellow I saw in one of the picture magazines who made himself a gadget to warm his shoes. Though invisible, I am in the great American tradition of tinkers. That makes me kin to Ford. Edison and Franklin. Call me, since I have a theory and a concept, a thinker tinker. Yes, I'll warm my shoes. They need it. They're usually full of holes. I'll do that and more. Now I have one radio phonograph. I plan to have five. There is a certain acoustical deadness in my hole. And when I have music, I want to feel its vibration, not only with my ear, but with my whole body. 
I'd like to hear five recordings of Louis Armstrong playing and singing What Did I Do to Be So Black and Blue, all at the same time. Sometimes now I listen to Louis while I have my favorite dessert of vanilla ice cream and slow gin. I pour the red liquid over the white mound, watching it glisten and the vapor rising as Louis bends that military instrument into a beam of lyrical sound. Perhaps I like Louis Armstrong because he's made poetry out of being invisible. I think it must be because he's unaware that he is invisible. And my grasp of my invisibility aids me to understand his music. Once when I asked for a cigarette, some jokers gave me a reefer, which I lighted when I got home and sat listening to my phonograph. It was a strange evening. Invisibility, let me explain, gives one a slightly different sense of time. You're never quite on the beat. Sometimes you're ahead, and sometimes behind. Instead of the swift and imperceptible flowing of time, you're aware of its nodes, those points where time stands still, or from which it leaps ahead, and you slip into the breaks and look around. That's what you hear vaguely in Louis' music. Once I saw a prize fighter boxing a yokel. The fighter was swift and amazingly scientific. His body was one violent flow of rapid rhythmic action. He hit the yokel a hundred times while the yokel held up his arms in stunned surprise. But suddenly the yokel, rolling about in the gale of boxing gloves, struck one blow and knocked science, speed, and footwork as cold as a well digger's ass. The smart money hit the canvas. The long shot got the nod. The yokel had simply stepped inside of his opponent's sense of time. So under the spell of the reefer, I discovered a new, analytical way of listening to music. The unheard sounds came through, and each melodic line existed of itself, stood out clearly from all the rest, set its peace, and waited patiently for the other voices to speak. That night I found myself hearing not only in time, but in space as well. I not only entered the music, but descended like Dante into its depths. And beneath the swiftness of the hot tempo, there was a slower tempo and a cave. And I entered it and looked around and heard an old woman singing a spiritual as full of Welchmerz as flamenco. And beneath that lay a still lower level on which I saw a beautiful girl, the color of ivory, pleading in a voice like my mother's, as she stood before a group of slave owners who bid for her naked body. And below that, I found a lower level, and a more rapid tempo, and I heard someone shout, Brothers and sisters, my text this morning is the blackness of blackness. And a congregation of voices answered, 
That blackness is most black, brother. Most black. In the beginning, at the very start, they cried. There was blackness. Preach it. And the sun, the sun law, was bloody red. Red. Now black is, the preacher shouted, bloody. I said black is, preach it, brother, and black ain't. Red, Lord, red. He said it's red. Amen, brother. Black will get you. Yes, it will. And black won't. No, it won't. It do. It do, Lord. And it don't. Hallelujah. It'll put you glory, glory, oh, my Lord, in the whale's belly. Preach it, dear brother. And make you tempt, good God Almighty, old Aunt Nellie. Black will make you black. Or black will unmake you. Ain't it the truth, Lord? And at that point, a voice of trombone timber screamed at me. Get out of here, you fool. Is you ready to commit treason? And I tore myself away, hearing the old singer of spirituals moaning, Go curse your God, boy, and die. I stopped and questioned her, asked her what was wrong. I dearly loved my master son, she said. You should have hated him, I said. He gave me several sons, she said. And because I loved my sons, I learned to love their father, though I hated him too. I too have become acquainted with ambivalence, I said. That's why I'm here. What's that? Nothing. A word that doesn't explain it. Why do you moan? I moan this way because he's dead, she said. Then tell me, who is that laughing upstairs? Them's my sons. They glad. Yes. I can understand that too, I said. I laughs too, but I moans too. He promised to set us free, but he never could bring himself to do it. Still, I loved him. Loved him? You mean, oh yes, but I loved something else even more. What more? Freedom. Freedom, I said. Maybe freedom lies in hating. No, son, it's in loving. I loved him and give him the poison, and he withered away like a frostbit apple. Them boys would have torn him to pieces with their homemade knives. A mistake was made somewhere, I said. I'm confused. And I wished to say, to say other things. But the laughter upstairs became too loud and moan-like for me. And I tried to break out of it, but I couldn't. Just as I was leaving, I felt an urgent desire to ask her what freedom was and went back. She sat with her head in her hands, moaning softly. Her leather-brown face was filled with sadness. Old woman, what is this freedom you love so well? I asked around a corner of my mind. She looked surprised, then thoughtful then baffled. I done forgot, son. It's all mixed up. First I think it's one thing, then I think it's another. It gets my head to spinning. I guess now it ain't nothing but knowing how to say what I got up in my head. But it's a hard job, son. 
too much has done happened to me in too short a time. Hits like I have a fever. Every time I starts to walk, my head gets to swirling and I falls down. Or if it ain't that, it's the boys. They gets to laughing and wants to kill up the white folks. They's bitter, that's what they is. But what about freedom? Leave me alone, boy, my head aches. I left her, feeling dizzy myself. I didn't get far. Suddenly, one of the sons, a big fellow, six feet tall, appeared out of nowhere and struck me with his fist. What's the matter, man? I cried. You made Ma cry. But how? I said, dodging a blow. Asking her them questions, that's how. Get out of here and stay. And next time you got questions like that, ask yourself. He held me in a grip like cold stone, his fingers fastening upon my windpipe until I thought I would suffocate before he finally allowed me to go. I stumbled about dazed, the music beating hysterically in my ears. It was dark. My head cleared and I wandered down a dark, narrow passage, thinking I heard his footsteps hurrying behind me. I was sore and into my being had come a profound craving for tranquility, for peace and quiet, a state I felt I could never achieve. For one thing, the trumpet was blaring and the rhythm was too hectic. A tom-tom beating like heart thuds began drowning out the trumpet, filling my ears. I longed for water, and I heard it rushing through the cold mains my fingers touched as I felt my way, but I couldn't stop the search because of the footsteps behind me. Hey, Ross, I called. Is it you, Destroyer? Reinhardt! No answer. Only the rhythmic footsteps behind me. Once I tried crossing the road, but a speeding machine struck me, scraping the skin from my leg as it roared past. Then somehow, came out of it, ascending hastily from this underworld of sound, to hear Louis Armstrong innocently asking, what did I do to be so black and blue? At first I was afraid. This familiar music had demanded action, the kind of which I was incapable, and yet had I lingered there beneath the surface, I might have attempted to act. Nevertheless, I know now that few really listen to this music. I sat on the chair's edge in a soaking sweat, as though each of my 1,369 bulbs had every one become a clay light in an individual setting for a third degree with Rise and Reinhardt in charge. It was exhausting, as though I had held my breath continuously for an hour under the terrifying serenity that comes from days of intense hunger. And yet, it was a strangely satisfying experience for an invisible man to hear the silence of sound. I had discovered unrecognized compulsions of my being, even though I could not answer yes to their promptings. I haven't smoked a reefer since. However, not because they're illegal, but because to see around corners is enough. That is not unusual when you are invisible. But to hear around them 
is too much. It inhibits action. And despite Brother Jack and all that sad lost period of the brotherhood, I believe in nothing if not in action. Please, a definition. A hibernation is a covert preparation for a more overt action. Besides, the drug destroys one's sense of time completely. If that happened, I might forget to dodge some bright morning and some cluck would run me down with an orange and yellow streetcar or a bilious bus. Or I might forget to leave my hole when the moment for action presents itself. Meanwhile, I enjoy my life with the compliments of monopolated light and power. Since you never recognize me, even when in closest contact with me, and since, no doubt, you'll hardly believe that I exist, it won't matter if you know that I tapped a power line leading into the building and ran it into my hole in the ground. Before that, I lived in the darkness into which I was chased, but now I see. I've illuminated the blackness of my invisibility, and vice versa. And so I play the invisible music of my isolation. The last statement doesn't seem just right, does it? But it is. You hear this music simply because music is heard and seldom seen, except by musicians. Could this compulsion to put invisibility down in black and white be thus an urge to make music of invisibility? But I am an orator, a rabble-rouser. Am. Am. I was, and perhaps shall be again. Who knows? All sickness is not unto death, neither is invisibility. I can hear you say, what a horrible, irresponsible bastard. And you're right. I leap to agree with you. I am one of the most irresponsible beings that ever lived. Irresponsibility is part of my invisibility. Any way you face it, it is a denial. But to whom can I be responsible? And why should I be when you refuse to see me? And wait until I reveal how truly irresponsible I am. Responsibility rests upon recognition, and recognition is a form of agreement. Take the man whom I almost killed. Who was responsible for that near murder? I? I don't think so, and I refuse it. I won't buy it. You can't give it to me. He bumped me. He insulted me. Shouldn't he, for his own personal safety, have recognized my hysteria, my danger potential? He, let us say, was lost in a dream world. But didn't he control that dream world, which, alas, is only too real? And didn't he rule me out of it? And if he had yelled for a policeman, wouldn't I have been taken for the offending one? Yes, yes, yes. Let me agree with you. I was the irresponsible one, for I should have used my knife to protect the higher interests of society. Some day, that kind of foolishness will cause us tragic trouble. All dreamers and sleepwalkers must pay the price, and even the invisible victim is responsible for the fate of all.
but I shirked that responsibility. I became too snarled in the incompatible notions that buzzed within my brain. I was a coward. But what did I do to be so brutal? Bear with me. Chapter 1 It goes a long way back, some twenty years. All my life I had been looking for something, and everywhere I turned, someone tried to tell me what it was. I accepted their answers too, though they were often in contradiction, and even self-contradictory. I was naive. I was looking for myself, and asking everyone except myself questions which I and only I could answer. It took me a long time and much painful boomeranging of my expectations to achieve a realization everyone else appears to have been born with, that I am nobody but myself. But first, I had to discover that I am an invisible man. And yet, I am no freak of nature, nor of history. I was in the cards, other things having been equal, or unequal, 85 years ago. I am not ashamed of my grandparents for having been slaves. I am only ashamed of myself for having at one time been ashamed. About 85 years ago, they were told that they were free, united with others of our country in everything pertaining to the common good, and in everything social, separate, like the fingers of the hand. And they believed it. They exulted in it. They stayed in their place, worked hard, and brought up my father to do the same. But my grandfather is the one. He was an odd old guy, my grandfather, and I am told I take after him. It was he who caused the trouble. On his deathbed, he called my father to him and said, Son, after I'm gone, I want you to keep up the good fight. I never told you but our life is a war, and I have been a traitor all my born days, a spy in the enemy's country ever since I gave up my gun back in the Reconstruction. Live with your head in the lion's mouth. I want you to overcome him with yeses, undermine him with grins, agree him to death and destruction. Let him swallow you till they vomit or bust wide open. They thought the old man had gone out of his mind. He had been the meekest of men. The younger children were rushed from the room, the shades drawn, and the flame of the lamp turned so low that it sputtered on the wick like the old man's breathing. Learn it to the youngins, he whispered fiercely. Then he died. But my folks were more alarmed over his last words than over his dying. It was as though he had not died at all. His words caused so much anxiety. I was warned emphatically to forget what he had said, and indeed this is the first time it has been mentioned outside the family circle. It had a tremendous effect upon me, however. I could never be sure of what he meant. Grandfather had been a quiet old man who never made any trouble, yet on his deathbed he had called himself a traitor and a spy, 
and he had spoken of his meekness as a dangerous activity. It became a constant puzzle which lay unanswered in the back of my mind. And whenever things went well for me, I remembered my grandfather and felt guilty and uncomfortable. It was as though I was carrying out his advice in spite of myself, and to make it worse, everyone loved me for it. I was praised by the most lily-white men of the town. I was considered an example of desirable conduct, just as my grandfather had been. And what puzzled me was that the old man had defined it as treachery. When I was praised for my conduct, I felt a guilt that in some way I was doing something that was really against the wishes of the white folks, that if they had understood, they would have desired me to act just the opposite, that I should have been sulky and mean, and that that really would have been what they wanted, even though they were fooled and thought they wanted me to act as I did. It made me afraid that some day they would look upon me as a traitor and I would be lost. Still, I was more afraid to act any other way, because they didn't like that at all. The old man's words were like a curse. On my graduation day, I delivered an oration in which I showed that humility was the secret, indeed, the very essence of progress. Not that I believed this. How could I? Remembering my grandfather, I only believed that it worked. It was a great success. Everyone praised me, and I was invited to give the speech at a gathering of the town's leading white citizens. It was a triumph for our whole community. It was in the main ballroom of the leading hotel. When I got there, I discovered that it was on the occasion of a smoker, and I was told that since I was to be there anyway, I might as well take part in the battle royal to be fought by some of my schoolmates as part of the entertainment. The battle royal came first. All of the town's big shots were there in their tuxedos, wolfing down the buffet foods, drinking beer and whiskey, and smoking black cigars. It was a large room with a high ceiling. Chairs were arranged in neat rows around three sides of a portable boxing ring. The fourth side was clear, revealing a gleaming space of polished floor. I had some misgivings over the battle royal, by the way. Not from a distaste for fighting, but because I didn't care too much for the other fellows who were to take part. They were tough guys who seemed to have no grandfather's curse worrying their minds. No one could mistake their toughness, and besides, I suspected that fighting a battle royal might detract from the dignity of my speech. In those pre-invisible days, I visualized myself as a potential Booker T. Washington. But the other fellows didn't care too much for me either, and there were nine of them. I felt superior to them in my way, and I didn't like the manner in which we were all crowded together into the servant's elevator. Nor did they like my being there. In fact, as the warmly lighted floors flashed past the elevator, we had words over the fact that I, by taking part in the fight, 
had knocked one of their friends out of a night's work. We were led out of the elevator through a Rococo hall into an anteroom and told to get into our fighting togs. Each of us was issued a pair of boxing gloves and ushered out into the big mirrored hall, which we entered looking cautiously about us and whispering, lest we might accidentally be heard above the noise of the room. It was foggy with cigar smoke, and already the whiskey was taking effect. I was shocked to see some of the most important men of the town quite tipsy. They were all there, bankers, lawyers, judges, doctors, fire chiefs, teachers, merchants, even one of the more fashionable pastors. Something we could not see was going on up front. A clarinet was vibrating sensuously, and the men were standing up and moving eagerly forward. We were a small, tight group clustered together, our bare upper bodies touching and shining with anticipatory sweat, while up front the big shots were becoming increasingly excited over something we still could not see. Suddenly I heard the school superintendent, who had told me to come, yell, Bring up the shines, gentlemen! Bring up the little shines! We were rushed up to the front of the ballroom, where it smelled even more strongly of tobacco and whiskey. Then we were pushed into place. I almost wet my pants. A sea of faces, some hostile, some amused, ringed around us. And in the center, facing us, stood a magnificent blonde, stark naked. There was a dead silence. I felt a blast of cold air chill me. I tried to back away, but they were behind me and around me. Some of the boys stood with lowered heads, trembling. I felt a wave of irrational guilt and fear. My teeth chattered, my skin turned to goose flesh, my knees knocked, yet I was strongly attracted and looked in spite of myself. Had the price of looking been blindness, I would have looked. The hair was yellow like that of a circus cupid doll, the face heavily powdered and rouged, as though to form an abstract mask, the eyes hollowed and smeared a cool blue, the color of a baboon's butt. I felt a desire to spit upon her as my eyes brushed slowly over her body. Her breasts were firm and round as the domes of East Indian temples, and I stood so close as to see the fine skin texture and beads of pearly perspiration glistening like dew around the pink and erected buds of her nipples. I wanted at one and the same time to run from the room, to sink through the floor, or go to her and cover her from my eyes and the eyes of the others with my body, to fill the soft eyes, to caress her and destroy her, to love her and murder her, to hide from her, and yet to stroke where below the small American flag tattooed upon her belly, her thighs formed a capital V. I had a notion that of all in the room, 
she saw only me with her impersonal eyes. And then she began to dance, a slow, sensuous movement, the smoke of a hundred cigars clinging to her like the thinnest of veils. She seemed like a fair bird girl, girdled in veils, calling to me from the angry surface of some gray and threatening sea. I was transported. Then I became aware of the clarinet playing and the big shots yelling at us. Some threatened us if we looked, and others if we did not. On my right, I saw one boy faint, and now a man grabbed a silver picture from a table and stepped close as he dashed ice water upon him and stood him up and forced two of us to support him as his head hung and moans issued from his thick, bluish lips. Another boy began to plead to go home. He was the largest of the group, wearing dark red fighting trunks much too small to conceal the erection which projected from him as though in answer to the insinuating, low-registered moaning of the clarinet. He tried to hide himself with his boxing gloves. And all the while the blonde continued dancing, smiling faintly at the big shots who watched her with fascination and faintly smiling at our fear. I noticed a certain merchant who followed her hungrily, his lips loose and drooling. He was a large man who wore diamond studs in a shirt front which swelled with the ample paunch underneath, and each time the blonde swayed her undulating hips he ran his hand through the thin hair of his bald head, and with his arms upheld, his posture clumsy like that of an intoxicated panda, wound his belly in a slow and obscene grind. This creature was completely hypnotized. The music had quickened. As the dancer flung herself about with a detached expression on her face, the men began reaching out to touch her. I could see their beefy fingers sink into the soft flesh. Some of the others tried to stop them, and she began to move around the floor in graceful circles as they gave chase, slipping and sliding over the polished floor. It was mad. Chairs went crashing, drinks were spilt as they ran laughing and howling after her. They caught her just as she reached a door, raised her from the floor and tossed her as college boys are tossed at a hazing, and above her red, fixed, smiling lips I saw the terror and disgust in her eyes, almost like my own terror and that which I saw in some of the other boys. As I watched, they tossed her twice, and her soft breasts seemed to flatten against the air, and her legs flung wildly as she spun. Some of the more sober ones helped her to escape, and I started off the floor, heading for the anteroom with the rest of the boys. Some were still crying and in hysteria, but as we tried to leave, we were stopped and ordered to get into the ring. Hey folks, guess what? That was the end of the first episode of It's in a Book. 
If you like the opening of Invisible Man, then of course you should go out right away and buy, borrow, beg for, or steal, just kidding, mostly, a copy of the book, paper, digital, whatever. Just read it. You won't regret it. This first episode and all subsequent was brought to you by the imaginations of Lawrence Strauss and William Taylor Allen Badger on long commutes to the SFQC in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Additionally, we were here at the almost superhuman patience of Kristen Rouse and Holden Rouse. And of course, let's not forget the letters R, E, and I for Invisible. We're going to try our hardest to make this a bi-weekly podcast. Look for us on the web at itsinabook.com and on iTunes. Now, good old Louis Armstrong is going to play us out with the sweet sounds of What Did I Do to Be So Black and Blue? Hey, hold it. Come here. Say it. Hey, it's in the book. He's been saying that all week. I love it. Bye-bye. All after bed, springs hard as lead, feel like old Ned, wish I was dead all my life through. I've been so black and blue. Even the mouse ran from my house. They laugh at you and scorn you too. What did I do then to be so black and blue? Oh, I'm white inside, but that don't help my case.